0: This is Tony Flip from Chicago, and this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners, like me. Send WBEZ some love by making a donation online at wbez.org. And thanks. Who is the... What is going to be...
1: When... Where do I...
2: Why is it called... How many...
1: What the most...
0: How many people...
2: I was wondering... School- when did- How much... When are we going to get What our- is the... What... <laughs> You're listening to the Curious City Podcast from WBEZ Chicago. You ask the questions, we answer them together.
1: The University of Chicago has a special, if that's the right word for it, place in nuclear history. It was home to a famous nuclear experiment in the 1940s that paved the way for the atomic bomb. But a curious citizen wondered, Did this experiment leave the university with a radiation problem?
2: Producer Katie Mingle has the answer. Here's the question, straight from the guy who asked it.
0: Hi, my name is Mark Eifert. I'm from Park Ridge, but I live in Germany, and I have a question. The first controlled nuclear reaction took place under University of Chicago's Stagg Field, and I'm wondering if that site is still radioactive
2: Now, to really unpack this question, it's helpful to know the full backstory. And it's a good story. So let's start back at World War II. American scientists were running experiments to help win the war, and some of that work was done in Chicago. To help tell the story, I found a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who wrote the book about this.
0: I'm uh, Richard Rhodes.
2: As Rhodes tells it, in 1938, scientists in Nazi Germany had discovered that when they split a uranium atom, that atom would release
0: neutrons.
2: Those neutrons could go find more uranium atoms to split, which would release even more neutrons, and you'd have a chain reaction.
0: Once the discovery was made, it was very quickly clear to scientists that this new extraordinarily energetic reaction made it possible to build atomic bombs.
2: Scientists knew that a chain reaction was possible in theory, but they'd never seen one. To get to the bomb, they'd need to experiment.
0: But this would be done in a slightly different way, and you could control it. It wouldn't all go boom at once. It would be something you could control.
2: Which gets us back to 1942 at the University of Chicago and an Italian physicist named Enrico Fermi. To demonstrate a chain reaction, Fermi would build a crude reactor. He called it a pile, because that's what it was, a pile of graphite bricks with uranium pellets interspersed. Uranium provided the neutrons, and graphite slowed the reactions. Now this is the part where Mark and other people might be wondering about radioactivity. Why run the experiment in the city, and not out in the woods? Well, they tried, but workers went on strike at that location, so they moved the pile to the next best location, underground on the university campus.
0: Squash courts, double squash courts.
2: And as Rhodes explains, it wasn't actually that crazy because they'd already been practicing in the squash courts with smaller piles.
0: The final full-scale machine was not starting from scratch. The odds of there being some totally different response out of these materials when they went the final step were very small. On the other hand, nature is full of surprises.
2: Rhodes says Fermi's team didn't think there'd be a surprise, as in an explosion. A worst-case scenario would have been something along the lines of a meltdown. Still, it couldn't have been an easy decision for Arthur Compton, who ran the research at the university.
0: finally concluded that he could not tell the president of the University of Chicago what they were doing and ask his permission.
2: In November of 1942, permission or not, Fermi's team started on the final pile. The whole team, even the scientists, helped unload graphite from boxcars.
0: People got just covered with this graphite. Imagine a big block of pencil lead in your hands. They, they would go home looking as if they'd been working in a coal mine all day.
2: They worked in shifts day and night, putting down layers of graphite and plunking in uranium pellets. They were using natural uranium, which isn't very radioactive.
0: Natural uranium is something that you can handle with your bare hands.
2: So the pile is growing and taking shape, looking something like...
0: A doorknob, but it was the size of a two-car garage.
2: Again, Fermi's team was aiming for criticality, that point at which the pile would build a chain reaction that would continue on its own. And for safety, they used special neutron-absorbing control rods. To turn the reaction on, they pulled the rods out. To slow things down, they'd push the rods back in. The scientists spend 17 days building the pile, moving rods around. And Fermi keeps calculating when the pile will go critical.
0: December 2nd, 1942, dawns in Chicago. very, very cold morning.
2: Fermi and his team start to put the final layers of the pile into place, and they're counting the neutrons with counters that work like Geiger counters and click as they register neutrons whizzing by.
0: So by close to noon, they're getting a pretty steady clicking sound out of the reactor. At this point, Fermi, who is a man of of great regularity, even though this is going to be the first time in the history of the world, that human beings have built a nuclear reactor. Fermi says, okay, time to stop for lunch. And then they come back. It's now one o'clock in the afternoon. And they put the last materials on the top with the control rods pushed all the way in. And then Fermi says, now we're going to remove the control rods and we should have a divergent chain reaction. And as they pull out these control rods, the reaction increases. The counter starts clicking, and it clicks faster and faster until finally it's a dull roar. Fermi is watching his other gauges and meters, and he says, the reaction is going. We have a chain reaction.
2: And here, Fermi and the atomic scientists got their proof that they could coax energy out of matter, and they had a path to the bomb and later to nuclear power. Rhodes tells us that Fermi let the reaction run like this for 15 minutes.
0: It was tense for everyone else, but Fermi was a very confident man.
2: When it was over, the scientists shared a bottle of Chianti in paper cups and drank in silence, aware, no doubt, of the far-reaching consequences of their actions that day. As for Mark's question about radioactivity, the reactor would only have been emitting radiation during those 15 minutes that Fermi let the reaction run on.
0: The amount of radioactivity was extremely small. It's faded away long ago. There really was very little risk, and I must say, most of these scientists lived to ripe old ages despite their exposures to low levels of radiation in the course of their work.
2: Just to be sure, though, I went with the University of Chicago's Radiation Safety Officer to a place just above the former site of Fermi's pile. A memorial is there now and a library. We took a reading on a Geiger counter, and sure enough, it read 0.02 millirems per hour. No abnormal radioactivity. For WBEZ's Curious City, I'm Katie Mingle. If
1: that story left you curious about where to find the grave site of the original Pile 1, you are in luck. We have a map that'll help guide you there. It's over on wbez.org slash city. If you live in Chicago or are here to visit, we promise it's quite a profound off-road adventure. But if you're a little weak-kneed about visiting, you can also find details and a museum-like tour at the nearby Argonne National Laboratory. Katie works for the Third Coast International Audio Festival and produces on the show Resound, if you love audio artistry like you just heard, check them out at thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening. Curiosity is produced by WPEZ Chicago Public Media, ZIGA, and AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio. Our senior producer is Jennifer Brandell. Sean Ali edits the series, and Logan Jaffe is our multimedia producer. The Curious City podcast is produced with production help from Sarah Liu, Mickey Capper, and editing oversight by Robin Amer. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or listen to our back catalog in SoundCloud. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Curious City. Lead financial support for Curious City comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.